0: Greetings and welcome back to the Women's Sports Film Podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer Matt. For those of you who missed our third annual film festival, you're in luck because on today's podcast, we're sharing a conversation from opening night between two-time Olympic gold medalist, Wyoming Atayas and Dave Zirin, sports editor at The Nation. Listen in to this women's sports trailblazer. She's an inspiration to us all.
1: At age 15, that's when I met uh, Coach Temple. And when I met him at a track meet, he thought I had potential. And he invited me to come and train under him at a at his summer camp. And he had at least 20 girls. He did this every year. And I just could, to this day, I'm always in awe that how could he look at me and say, you are the one. You know, I'm going to choose you. and I'm just, I'm so amazed that he could do that. I went there at the age 15, not knowing anything, coming from a small town, so it was a culture shock too. Mm-hmm. I um, go there and these women were, well, I mean, let me tell this little story. He meets me at the train station, not the airport, but at the train station and he has this tall woman with him and he says, Tyus, this is Rudolph. I said okay. Uh, hi, <laughs> and little old me just did not know who Wilma Rudolph was. So we get to the dorms, and we we're in the, with the other young ladies that were there that were same age as I. From so a lot of from Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, and they were there, and they were talking about who Wilma was, and she had won three gold medals, and that's how I found out who Wilma Rudolph was. <laughs> And also, that's how I found out about who the tiger bells were, because these were a group of women that were doing things that I never knew women could do. I mean, there was a woman on the team that was a mathematician. I said, a woman? I mean, math? And you know, we were talking about the 60s, and they were talking about going to Europe, and all, and I was like, gosh, I want to do that. That's something I would like to do. And so I wanted to share that with the world, that. This man did so much for black women. And I, as he would say, he was Title IX long before there was a Title IX. Mm. You know? So I wanted to put my, these things out in my book. And so mm. that is the main reason that I tried to do the book for him, for the Tiger Bears, and of course for myself. I had a lot of things mm-hmm. that I needed to say too.
2: Now, f- 40 Olympians, 20 plus medals, 13 golds. Can you tell everybody how big Tennessee State was?
1: Tennessee State was very small at that time and it's still very small, it's a HBC school. And uh, I think at the time I was in school, maybe 2,000 students, maybe. This is remarkable.
2: <laughs> like you said, more medals than some countries and two, with 2,000 students. Mm-hmm. That's just really unbelievable. You, you mentioned uh, Griffin, Georgia a moment ago. I was wondering if you could tell us what it was like to grow up in the Griffin, Georgia of your childhood.
1: Well, I grew up in uh, Jim Crow South, uh, for those of you who know pretty much what that is. I mean, if you don't, we'll, we will be discussing it. But the, I grew up there. It was I grew up on a dairy farm. No, we did not own, own the farm. My dad worked the farm, so, uh, and he worked very hard for, on the farm because he did not want his children working the farm he said i have you me and my, your mother have done enough hard work for everybody so i want my kids to go to school and his words were to get that lesson meaning he wanted us to get an education because he was not able to do so so he definitely wanted us to go to school and didn't want us working in anybody's dairy or on anybody's in anybody's cotton field or anything like that. And where I grew up on a dairy farm, it was in a white community. And because the person that owned the farm, he had a farmhouse, we lived in the farmhouse, and it was in a white community. So growing up there, yes, there's a lot going on in the South. and. Segregation and places black people could not go. Well, you go into this town, you have colored here, whites there. Colored water, and I can just remember our as kids, we should turn on the water, see what color it was going to be. And, <laughs> but but uh, so growing up there, and I could, I grew up with three older brothers, so I have always enjoyed being an athlete. You just being active. I played football. I played basketball. I played. Baseball, whatever games, and who could be the best on that bicycle, who could climb the tree highest, and all those things. So I was always that kind of person. And I got to, my dad would tell my brothers, you know, we don't want to hear that stuff about girls can't play with us, you know. And he would always say, she's better than you guys, anyways. You should let her play. And that, isn't that what you really want on a team? Is your best player? You want somebody to give their best and be the best, and that's all he should tell them. And you know, to this day, I'm very thankful that my parents had that, you could see that they had that vision too. They was not, they didn't want to hinder us from doing anything. They, they also sheltered us too. They kept us safe being in a white neighborhood, but we had no trouble with the white kids. We played, I couldn't play with the white girls, nor could my brothers. We were not allowed, but we played with the white boys. And the stories I remember most fun was that fact we would go and play, and we would, my brothers and I, and they would say, the white kids would go, we don't want a girl playing with us. And they'd say, oh, come on, no, we don't want her playing. And my brothers would go, oh, well, we'll take her. Mm. And we start off the football game. By the end of the football game, they wish they had taken me. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) But they, you know, it came, you know, every time we would go back to play, and when when I say go back to play, where we lived, that's where we played the football. It was right in our yard, backyard, so to speak. So they would come over and play and they would go, well, we want her, well, they called me sister then. They was like, we want sister on our team. Nope, you didn't take me the first time. You can't have me now. (laughs) But it was that and, you know, we were always aware of that. We were black and uh, there's a white world of which we were living in out there and that we were also aware of what could happen to us, but our parents were very uh, taught us good lessons and what to expect, what to. He, they made, my dad would always say, "Look, why would you want to be with people that don't want to be with you? Mm. You know, you need to be. You know, it's okay." And I don't think it. And he would also said, "It's not always going to be this way. Mm. Things are going to change, and you will see that." And so he was somewhat right.
2: So speaking of change, can you speak about a certain park in Griffin, Georgia? <laughs> okay, Dave. <laughs> I know, I know, I, I, I just, okay. You, 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 these, these are tough times, and you gotta give people stories that have like happy, remarkable endings.
1: Well, in Griffin, Georgia, Griffin, Georgia, when I was growing up, it was about 40,000 people. Uh, most of those are rural and in, living in, in the rural areas. Uh, when I went to the Olympics in 64 and 68 and all of that, they, I got a parade in Griffin and people were happy and all of that, but in 92, was it, they, gave, they built a park for me, a Wyoming Tyus Olympic Park, which is huge. <laughs> I was very shocked about it because they had talked to my mom. And my mom kept saying, you need to come home because they're building this park for you. I said, I don't need to come home for a little old park. (laughs) But I did. And the the park is not a little old park. It's 168 acres. Upon the dedication, one of the officials at Griffin came up to me and said, Wami, I hope this makes up for all the things that we did not do for you in 64 or 68. Mm-hmm. I know you can't really make up for it, but this is what we can do for you now. And that lets me, that's why I say things have changed, mm-hmm. and there are people that do change. It takes a lot of work, and it's not gonna happen overnight.
2: That's so beautiful to me. Now, now, You talk about playing with the boys, beating the boys, making the boys look silly, but when was the first time you knew that you actually had Olympic-level talent? Was it uh, not until you got to Tennessee State, or was there a moment in Griffin, Georgia, where it was obvious that you were just on a different level than the people around you?
1: Well, I didn't know, because I didn't know about the Olympics, so I didn't know if I had Olympic talent or not. (laughs) (laughs) I don't I never looked at it that way. I like I said before, I just enjoyed being out there, enjoyed being active, Being trying to be the best and trying to beat my brothers and I figured if I could beat them, I could beat anybody. <laughs> but mm-hmm. uh but so I never realized that I had Olympic talent cuz there was also a young lady that was running track at the same time I was running in my school, and she was beating me every day, so I never thought I really had Olympic talent. (laughs) I didn't think I had first-class talent, actually, but Frances Dallas was very good at running. She used to beat me all the time, and, um, you know, the thing is, I saw her after I came back from my first Olympics, and she said to me, I wish I had to continue to run. I could have been just like you. But I got interested in other things like boys and not, not caring about what's going on. So yeah. that was it. And then it goes back to Mr. Temple when he saw me run and uh, when I was 15 and invited me up to uh, Tennessee State and participate with other young women that were my age. But even when I got there, I was running, but I wasn't really winning. I was getting beat up pretty good there. And uh, Mr. Temple changed my whole style of running and uh, it was so bad. He said, and he changed it. And I was getting—I was so used to getting first. So here I am getting fourth, fifth. I mean, why am I here? But he—he uh, he changed it for the best. He started calling me because I was trying so hard to do what he wanted me to do. I worked so hard at going, doing the arms right, and all that. And he started calling me the mechanical man because I was—that's <laughs> what I looked like. He said, running around the track, but. That first summer there was really hard because he had us, we were on a college campus. You're talking about women that age 15, 16, 17 on a college campus. We had three day of practice. We went to practice at five in the morning, nine in the morning, and one in the afternoon. If you know anything about the South, you should not be in anybody's sun out there one in the <laughs> afternoon. So we were always, I mean, we would come off the track, and all you could do is get to your dorm and lay down. I'll go eat and then lay down. And I think the first, that first summer I said to, um, I called my mom and told her that I can't handle this. This is too much. Mm-hmm. That. And she said, well, I can tell you this. You don't have to go next year, but you have to finish this summer out. And that was the best thing that could happen to me—that for her to make me stay that summer. And you know, the rest is pretty much history. That mm. I stayed there, and I worked through all those issues, and I—I uh, I grew. That's—that's that's what happened. I mean, I think yeah. I grew a lot. I just even being around women that was doing the same thing I was mm-hmm. doing that was running and that uh, had stories to tell. There's more to life than just this track and that you're going to see other things and you need to be educated in order to see that. And you know, that was Mr. Temple's thing. You need to, he would say this track will open the door for you, mm-hmm. but education would keep the door open. So that was my key. It was like, This is great education here. I mean, I was just learning and I was like a little sponge soaking up anything that
2: these tiger bells were saying. Mm. How difficult was the culture shock going from Griffin, Georgia to Nashville, Tennessee? And was it the community of women at Tennessee State who helped you navigate that culture shock? Or maybe it was just easy peasy lemon squeezy when you went (laughs) to Nashville?
1: Well, it was, well, for me, because I was a person did not talk very much. I mean, Mr. Temple used to say all the time, Tyus, say more than four words." <laughs> and and uh, Mr. Temple also called us by all of all of us by our last name. So you know, he would say, i never say more than four words. You need to speak more." And I, by being there at Tennessee State with Tiger Bells, that some of them that did not know when to stop talking, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> And then I, I I got a little bit more encouragement to talk, but I don't think I said more than four words, like he said. But I, it, I I'm saying more than four words tonight, thank God.
0: <laughs>
1: About and it was just more the culture shock. It was not so much because what was happening in Georgia was also happening in Tennessee, and we were exposed to all that. I mean, we were going on, on tour. Uh, Go to different track meets, and we would load us up in the station wagons, and we get in the station wagons, and yet, you know, the goal was you go early in the morning so you're not driving at night. You know, don't be driving at night in the south with a, a group of women, black women, in the car, and so sometimes we would go to through towns, and we couldn't use the bathrooms, so we have to pull over along the road and. Uh, Go to the bathroom mm-hmm. out there, so so that was that was not a culture shock, you know, yeah. it was, <laughs> but you know, it was not that much of a culture shock
2: really. Mm. And you know, one of the things when, when when I've researched what it was like to be a, a female athlete in the 1950s and early 60s at at PWIs, predominantly white institutions, uh, th- there's this emphasis on the female athlete wearing makeup on the court or on the field and making sure that their hair is done and this this emphasis on on presentation, not just the athletics themselves. Was that something you ever had to deal with at Tennessee State or was Mr. Temple having none of that nonsense?
1: Well, Mr. Temple's, uh, well it wasn't so much nonsense in his life, he always felt that we were in a sport that most people looked at as a male sport Mm-hmm. and he, and yeah here you're talking about black women so they're looking at us to a little a lot different and he would always his rule was you know he wanted you to be ladies mm-hmm. and that meant uh we did have to dress up you know especially if we went on an airplane and also this is just part of growing up in the south mm-hmm. you you know you dress up you, you if you go into church you dress up you go in, you're getting on an airplane you dress up but I can just remember we're flying and we're wearing heels and stockings and there are pictures with a, some of them with hats on and things, but he always wanted his girls to look a certain way. He would always tell us at the race, don't just let the camera or somebody come take your picture because you go, he would always say, you go and get yourself together so you don't look, uh, your hair's not all over your head and people won't say, wow, that's why she won. She scared everybody type thing. Uh-huh. but. Uh, Wow. You know, but he had his rules, uh, mm-hmm. you know, you either, you know, this was his thing, he would, if you didn't follow his rule, you would go home, mm-hmm. you know, he would send you home, and his thing was that when he was send you home, if he talked about sending you home, he said, oh, I'll well, send you home with a comic book and an apple,
2: <laughs> and we were,
1: everybody would go, what a comic book and an apple, and his rule was that, well, you have something to eat, and you have something to read,
2: so, <laughs> do you
0: want
2: fast forward to the uh, to the 1964 olympics uh, d- did you expect to win that 100 meter gold at those olympics your first games tokyo
1: no i didn't expect to win it and i had mr Temple telling me all the time too that we don't expect you to win it. you know he did I- when I went to the Olympics, I was 19 and 64. Uh, we went to the Olympic trials, and my best friend, who's Edith McGuire, Duvall now, who's back there. <laughs> Wave Edith. <laughs> but uh, she was, they had thought she would be going to the Olympics and winning three gold medals like Wilma had done four years prior. Uh, when we went to the Olympic trials, I got third. They, had, they take three athletes, and I was the third one. And Mr. Temple would say, oh, that's just great, Tyus. You know, you made the team. People try all their lives and never make an Olympic team. You did it on your first go around. So we don't expect more, that much from you. Uh, we're looking at you for 68. I said, mm. OK, thank you, Mr. Temple. <laughs> and he got on the plane and went on to Tokyo. <laughs> but uh, we get to Tokyo, we training and all of that. And he tells me you know, he is upset a little bit because I gained all of three or four pounds, which mm. I needed, evidently. <laughs> but he says, well, you, you come over here and you're eating all this, all this rice and all these things you need to push away from the table. And that's what he would say when he thought you gained too much weight. But anyway, uh, we went the 100, when we went for the race of the 100, my first heat in the 100 meters, I won. And uh, he said, that's a good job, Tyus. The second race, I won. The third one, I won. And then we went to the finals of the 100. I was out warming up on the track. Now, Mr. Temple was a coach, the head coach of the women's team for 64. Uh, for the '64 Olympics, so he was out on the track and he was talking to me and give, giving me what he called a pep talk. <laughs> mm-hmm. And his pep talk was, well, Tyus, you did well. You're looking good in your races. And, you know, I don't expect that much from you, but you look good enough. Mm-hmm. Maybe you could win a medal." I said, "Okay, thank you, Mr. Temple." <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: And then I, um, as I continued to warm up, I said, I think I can win a medal. I may be able to win a gold medal. That's in my head though. <laughs> never, <laughs> never spoke it out loud. And then I, once I said it in my head, I was like, oh, I should not be thinking like that. Go, go, no, 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 no. So, <laughs> And then um, came to the final of the 100 and we were in the it was the three Americans, I think, Marilyn White was in the eighth lane, Edith was seventh, and I was in the sixth lane. And a gun went off, and down the track we went, and usually, I had not beaten Edith before the Olympic Games, Edith had always won. And then I was out there running, and I kept going, where is Edith? You know? because. <laughs> I didn't look around, but I kept saying, where is she? I know she's usually here. And by the time we got to about 80 meters, I said, where is Ida? (laughs) This is going on in my head. And I'm like, oh, my. I said, you know, Mr. Temple said, never look around, because if you look for one side, somebody passed you on the other side. So by 85 meters, I could hear her. I said, oh gosh, she." Is. relax, relax, stay relaxed, keep your knees up, do all the things that Coach Temple told you, just stay relaxed. And I said, oh, I really hear her. I really, I, mean, I, I you know, I always say, I think I was, I could smell her coming. And I yeah. was like, oh! <laughs> She's wow. there, she's right there on me. And, you know, then it was the finish line, and, I and all of that, and it was like, Edie ran to me, you won, you won. I said, I did? I was wondering. I said, what did you get, what did you get? She said, I got second. I said, oh, okay. So Mr. Temple was so happy that he had two of the Tiger Bells to win, we got first and second in the 100 meters. Not only that, he had. we were from the same state and all of that. So he was so happy. And I just remember Edie telling Mr. Temple, I'm going to win that 200. Don't worry.
0: <laughs>
1: and she did.
2: Thank you. Now, we go from 1964 to the momentous year of 1968, 50th anniversary coming up of, 19, of those 1968 games, October, 1968, Mexico City. I mean, the the backdrop for that year, of course, was so much political tumult. And you had the Olympic Project for Human Rights. Can you speak a little bit about what the Olympic Project for Human Rights were and how they did or did not include athletes like yourself?
1: Well. The whole project started out, it started out actually about talking about the black athletes not going to the Olympic Games, so they were calling it a black boycott. Uh, and this is all happening out here in California, happening right down the street here at San Jose State, where Tommy Smith and John Carlos were in school, and this is where all this was, all it started. And for some reason, they chose not to include women, I wonder why, I don't know. but. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But they, we got our information from reporters calling Mr. Temple asking, well, Smith and Carlos are saying these things, what's your girls going to do? And he said, you have to talk to them. Mm -hmm. But, you know, but I'm not gonna go get them out of class for you to talk to them. You could come on campus and come, but nobody came. But what happened, that, they' kind of let the whole uh, black boycott go and it started out a change it to the human uh, project for human rights and when we went to Mexico City, that we were talking about what could we do, what could athletes do to show their what they protesting what we felt to change, not only in America, but throughout the world. Because most people think, well, it's just in America. But there were things that were happening in South Africa that we needed to be aware of. And the things that happened in Mexico City when we were right there with the students being killed. So that really gave a lot more power to the Project for Human Rights. And people started thinking, yeah, we do need to be more involved with that. We um, so. But still, uh, the athletes, I think Tommy, I, when I look at what Tommy and Carlos I, and all the other men athletes, I just keep saying, well, they were young. Maybe that's why they didn't th- think of us. I don't understand why don't. Because I, when I look at protests and when you want a movement to happen, you ha- you're better in numbers. And I think that not only numbers, you do need women to be a part of it. And, because we we have a different outlook on a lot of things, and you need to have that in movements so you can get a lot of things accomplished and get a lot of different ideas from different people. Uh, so, But anyway, it, it didn't happen that way. They didn't include us, and I always said, I don't know why they didn't include us, but they missed a great opportunity. <laughs> so uh, we went on to go to the Olympics, and we, I think all of us know what happened on the victory stand with Tommy and John Carlos when they went to the victory stand and, and they put their fist up during the National Anthem. Uh, They had, we as athletes, and not just black athletes, there was also white athletes involved, like the uh, whole crew team from uh, uh, Harvard Road Team. They all were involved. You had Peter Norman from Australia, that most of you, he was on the victory stand with Tommy and Carlos. So there were a lot of people that was in support of that. So, um, excuse me. So when we were there, they, we couldn't decide on what the whole team could do. It had to be, well, you have to make up your mind, you, you do whatever you like, and that's what. So when Tommy and Carlos, did, they chose to do, other athletes didn't have too much of his choice because what they did was so powerful, no one else needed to do anything. It told the real story of what was going on. I can just remember being in the stands, and uh, they had won their medals. I had won a 100, and I was in the stands because I had to run the relay two days later. So they came out of the tunnel, and I see them, and I'm looking at them, and they don't have on shoes. I'm going, they don't have on shoes, what's going on? Mm-hmm. And then they go to their victory stand. And I'm like, gosh, what are they doing? And you know, I could see they had a glove on their hand, but I didn't know what was going on. And when they played the national anthem and their hand their fist went up i mean my mouth was just open and i think a lot of other people's mouths were too and the whole stadium i can remember it so vividly got so quiet i mean it was just nothing and then as the national anthem kept playing then you could hear people little voices and then you could hear rumbling, and then you could hear whistling and boos, and then you also you heard cheers. And all I could think of, wow, that is so powerful. And then I kept thinking, I hope no one hurts them, because i kind of afraid about, you know, you never know what people will do, and it was, I was so afraid that they could get hurt. And then I started thinking, I could, too. I look like <laughs> them, <laughs> you know, so I need to, we need to worry about that. I need to get out of the stadium, but I knew I couldn't get out that moment. So they, once they came off the uh, victory stand and all of that, and they whisked them into wherever they took them, you know. and mm-hmm. then by the time we got back to the Olympic Village, all the rumors were, well, they're they are taking their medals, they're kicking them out the Olympic Village, and they're kicking them out this country. I said, well, they can't kick them out the country. They, they don't own this country. I didn't do that. Mm-hmm. But, <laughs> but uh, they did get kicked out the Olympic Village. No, they did not take their medals. They could not. Um, So other athletes after that decided what they would do. Well, throughout the whole games, I wore dark black shorts in my protest for human rights. And also other athletes wore black shorts. They wore black socks and some of them were black berets, uh, wristbands and all those kinds of things. Those things was done. And, And after I ran the relay team and we went into the, press room and they talking to the press people are talking to us and they ask well what do you think about what they just did I mean what is this I said what do you mean what do you think about it I mean I mean it's such a disgrace to the country I said well no I don't see that I well what I think is this I dedicate my medals to them mm. and support their efforts this is what I do. Thanks. Now, I said all these things, but none of those things were printed, so (laughs) nobody would ever know that that happened. I think now in Fifty years later, people are just finding these things yeah. out.
2: and people talk about that. They said Wyoming ties dedicated the medals from the four by one hundred relay mm-hmm. to John Carlos and Tommy Smith. I mean, was it was that decision done spontaneously by you, or was it because they were pressing you, or what was it? One of those things that you thought out, like wearing the black shorts.
1: Well, no, I mean, you know, we were ta- we were thinking about athletes were thinking for themselves and what they wanted to do i know we had said like you know one thing we have black shorts we can wear black shorts you know mm-hmm. and that's what i that's what some of us did and then the other thing was when we went to the um when we went to the press room i wasn't thinking anything like that and they said and i just felt like they were like well what they did was such a disgrace and how do you feel about it and i felt like well was a disgrace not to me? I know what they, they, why they did it. It was a protest for human rights, and we all want human rights. We all would like to have equal human rights. So I, and to show my support for what I believe in and what I thought they were doing, it was correct. I want to dedicate my medal.
2: Mm. I, and I, I'm so curious about Mr. Temple during all this because he's, you know, he, he's obviously somebody who's got, you know my way or you've got the comic book and the apple and now in in four short years you go from 64 to 68 with athletes you know thinking for themselves in a different kind of way and and you know really testing the rules and how did Mr. Temple respond to the, the, that changing environment
1: well, he was always wanting us to be our own selves. He wanted us to believe in what we wanted. If whatever we wanted to do, we needed to believe in it. And if it was something that we wanted to fight for, and we believed in it that much, that's what we should do. Most people always thought Mr. Temple told us what to do, told us when to go to bed, when to eat, all those kinds of things. But believe it or not, he gave us a lot of room. He gave us. He recognized us for people, and people would. In people that were thinking, people and women that was thinking, and that uh, we needed to be strong as a black woman, mm-hmm. and in in this country at that time, if you wanted something, you needed to speak up for it, and you need to speak out for it. He didn't definitely say it that way, mm-hmm. but that's the way I took it. And uh, to me, it was more like my father saying to me, you know, you know, you need to do what you really feel. I can just remember. Uh, him always saying that to me and like when I was six years old my brother and I wanted cowboy outfits for Christmas and I my mom was insisting that I had a cowgirl outfit and I was insisting that I had a cowboy outfit you know and she kept saying and my dad said to her you know you're not going to change her. She really wants that. She's never going to wear that cowgirl outfit. That's just a waste of money. And uh, you know, so I think like I started. At, to me, when I think about it, at six years old, I was pushing the envelope, so to speak. I was st- standing up for myself and what I believe is right. What was felt good to me. And I take that and I look at Coach Temple, and he was the same way. As we grew older, he gave us a lot more freedom. And he, you know, he was strict, yes, but he also wanted you to be your own thinker. He wanted you to be able to, and he always would say, if you want to do something, just be sure that you have the knowledge and you know what you need to say and be aware of what's going around you. And that made him prouder than anything that we do those things. He wanted you to be your person. He wanted you to, if you want to take go out and be an activist, that was great for him. He, didn't, he wouldn't say it, but he would never say don't. He would just say you need to make sure you know this is something you want and also the consequences that come with it. It won't be easy. Are you ready for all the pressure that comes? And uh, that's, to me, that's where it started with me.
2: Wow. Now, 50 years later, uh, you were just back in Mexico City. Yes. A few days ago. <laughs> <laughs> Can you speak a little bit um, what that was like? What what emotions it brought to you? What memories flooded back? I can't imagine what that must have been like.
1: Well, I'm thinking, oh, OK, I'm going back. They've invited me back. And we, they said, we're going to go to the stadium. I said, oh, yeah. You know, I'm one of those people don't really get excited about too many things. So mm. I'm like, OK, that sounds good, OK. <laughs> And uh, we go to the stadium, and when we go, and and you know, I'm looking uh, as we're traveling. We can see, and it's like, gosh, I remember that. Oh, that's such a man. And then we go in. You know, we started to go into the stadium, and all of a sudden, i, I my, mean, I, I got chills all over me. And it was like, what is this? So I'm thinking. Uh. But it was just that. It was just the fact of being able to go back after fifty years, uh, because. It was not only just those 50 years. The fact that that was going to be my last race at the Olympic Games that I went. I had goal. My goal for '68 when I was in college was to graduate from college in '68, which I did two months prior to going to the Olympics, and then and go to the Olympic Games to win the 100 meters, which I did, <laughs> and be the first person ever on this planet. Male or female to <laughs> to win back-to-back gold medals in the hundred meters. Yeah. So that you know, so all of that being there this past week, it was wonderful. I enjoyed it tremendously. I didn't try to run. I walked around the track.
2: <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, what what advice do you have for, if any? for this generation of athletes who are finding their activism we've seen Colin Kaepernick we've seen other athletes uh, take a knee during the anthem to speak about racial inequity and police violence and speak about the gap between what the anthem promises and people's lived experiences What, what do you say to those athletes today
1: well, most people, when they look at, I mean, when people look at athletes, and I, I thought it had changed a lot of times, it just because you know, you go out there and you do, you, you go out there and you compete, and that's all you need to do. We all have brains, and uh, these brains are good brains, and they're, and not only that, to me, this is a platform that you can use, and mm-hmm. right? people, oh, you shouldn't bring that in, you know, sports, no politics, no, the, it's always been that way, it's always going to be, how can you live without having the politics, and maybe you don't look at it that way, some people don't, but I just think athletes in this day and time and young athletes, you need to have values, whatever your values are, whatever you believe in, you should definitely go for it. You should definitely know that it's not, if you choose to do something different than other people, then you know you're gonna have to fight for it just as harder than the norm. If you were just doing the norm, You just walk through life. And I don't think people just want to walk through life, especially when I think of athletes, they, they put themselves on the line, not all, you know, whether it's in track, whether it's in football or whatever. They are out there, they're giving it their all. And that's the same thing in life. You have to give it your all and be happy with what you do. I just think the young athletes in this day and time need to know, you need to be educated, they don't have to go to college to be educated. You know, that's you can read, you can learn things. What's happening in your community? What's happening in your city? What's happening in the world? What do you need to get involved in if you want to get involved? You don't always have to be the one to speak out because everybody can't speak out. It's kind of like in the Olympics. Everybody can't be on that, on that victory stand.
0: Mm-hmm. But
1: you, we all can contribute. We all mm-hmm. have something we can give to the cause or whatever your cause is going to be. And you just got to be able to be one person that's going to stay in it, stick with it. And uh, you're looking to help not just yourself, but many Mm -hmm. of the people that can't help themselves, Mm. that really needs help. And I think young athletes should do that. I think um, more women should get involved in it. And that's what I see.
2: Yeah. And and what about women athletes? I mean, you've been so active over the last 50 years. You've been one of of the founders of the Women's Sports Foundation. Title IX has passed. Uh, It seems like there's been so much progress, but also that there's such a ways to go. What do you think about the state of women athletes um, in the United States now in 2018?
1: Well, I think it's good. I just think they need to get equal pay for equal work. (laughs) I think once that happened, I mean, I, I don't understand why people can't see that. I, as I said, when I was growing up, my dad would always say to us, my brothers, you want the best on your team. Mm-hmm. So if women are really good, and they are, that uh, they should get paid the same as any man should get paid. Uh, our talent's no less than theirs. I, mm-hmm. I, I think a good example is that is what happened with these soccer teams, mm-hmm. the women's soccer teams and the men's soccer team, women's soccer teams winning kicking butt, and uh, they get underpaid. Men's not winning, you know, losing all the time, and they they get paid higher. That doesn't make sense to me. So that's where we, as women, too, have to speak out if you have a platform to do so. Mm -hmm. And same thing with starting with the Women's Sports Foundation. It was just, we were sitting around talking about the inequality that was happening to us, that happened to us, and people coming up to us as and looking at us as role models and saying, I wish I could have done this when I was your age. I just didn't have the encouragement, but I want my daughters to have the encouragement. I want my daughters to be involved in this. And so we were talking about this and we were trying to figure out many years ago, what could we do to -hmm. change these things? And this happened at an event at well, the Women's superstars where it was Billie Jean King, uh, Donna DeVarona, Mickey king Hope. Uh, I, I can't think of other people, myself. We were all sitting around talking about this and that's how this started with the Women's Sports Foundation. And now we have see so many changes. Women are able, it's, when I was in school, Tennessee State was the only school giving athletic scholarships to women in America, the only school, can you believe that here in America? Now, what kind of sense does that make? Um, but now we have every university, college, given the women opportunities to participate in the sport in which they choose to.
2: And I've got to ask, what, what do you think about uh, Serena Williams? And <laughs> particularly, um, I mean, she's a total shero of mine, but particularly the recent US Open where it, it seemed like the reaction to her anger as a woman, as a black woman, seemed so over the top compared to ma- male tennis players and, and the language they say and whatnot. And, and I was wondering, what, what was your reaction when that well, went down? Well, of
1: course, I support Serena all the way, okay? Yeah. They, Now, I just, you know, we talk about the equal playing field. Yes, she was getting beat at the time, but those people that really watch tennis and watch Serena and know Serena, she's been in that position so many times and came right out of that position. But, and the referee just did not, I mean, for me, I look at him and say, what, what kind of rules? How could you do that? When you think about all those times John Micro broke a racket, ran, ran up to the official yelled so many insults to them and he never kicked him or took a uh, took a point or took maybe he may have taken a point but never took a game from him or anything mm-hmm. like that and here it is i i always i definitely felt that it was because she was black and she would she would not back down mm-hmm. you know and He's saying, well, your coach is doing this. She said, but I'm not looking at my coach. I didn't see my coach. But he, this is not the only coach that does that. Mm-hmm. If you watch tennis at all, there are a lot of coaches that do that. But I just think he just lost it. He, was, he didn't know what to do because she was confronting him and he mm-hmm. knew he was on national television. And I dare a black woman speak to me that way and talk mm-hmm. to me. I think he kind of got caught up in those kinds of things. Mm. But, that's okay, Serena's always gonna be back.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> and then, I just had uh, one more question, and then I wanna open it up to the crowd if folks have questions from Wyoming Ties. Uh I I'm, don't, wanna, don't wanna hog this at all, because it's so, it's so great to talk to you. Um, I, I know that a lot of young people are reading and are going to read your book. What Message? Do you want the young reader, the teenage reader, uh, the reader who's working two jobs and going to community college? What What message do you want them to get from your book?
1: Well, that is not easy. You know, that what I did, and to in my book, I just would like for people to understand that. You have to work hard at a lot of things and sometimes you don't get what you want the first time so you have to try again. That, you know, I think that um, you can't, it goes back to what I said earlier about values and believing in yourself. Those two things, I think, as long as you believe in yourself, you have great values of what mm-hmm. you think, how you want to see things, how you would like to change things. That everybody doesn't have to speak out. You can also change, help change things just by being a participant. And being there to listen and just, they get that from my book and that that uh, we all can do it and you know just because you're a woman, you can't let it get you down. If I did that, I would not be up on the stage right now being able to talk to you and share with you some of the things that happened to me that made me grow that made me a better person. and I also used all my experience as a growth experience I, I always say, my co-writer Elizabeth over there, You know, we would talk about it and we would always say, well, this was a growth period for you and this was a growth period for you. So you, know, you have to look at things and say, I hope that they, when they're looking at things and looking at their lives, where you want to be next year, where you want to be in 10 years, you have to make those, you have to set goals for yourself. And all the time, you don't reach your goals on the first time. But if you don't, there's always another time.
2: Mm. good people of Oakland, please put your hands together for Wyoming Attias.
0: I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Women's Sports Film Podcast. Next week, we'll be bringing you a great panel discussion from the festival. If you live in the Bay Area, join us Thursday, October 18th at Sports Basement in Berkeley for a Best of the Fest movie night. See our website, womensportsfilm.com, for more information. Thanks for listening. Check out our show notes at womensportsfilm.com forward slash podcast. This episode was edited and produced by Meg Schutzer. Music by Shell, S-H-E-L. You can find more about them at shellmusic.com. If you liked this episode, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or anywhere you listen to your podcasts. Positive reviews are greatly appreciated.